We're going to be in the uh, book of Revelation. So this, uh, this message for me comes off of last week's sermon. If you weren't here last week, just to quickly review, we're, you know, normally we go through the Bible at Coastlines, kind of our, our jam to just go all the way through God's word. And we do it on purpose because um, we think that all of God's word is inspired by God. It's actually stuff that God wrote um, and communicated through people because it was it has uh, foundational truth. It's it's revelatory things you couldn't know necessarily on your own, and that it's all valuable. So Paul says to the Ephesian elders, "I didn't neglect to declare anything that was profitable, declaring the whole counsel of God." So we just go verse by verse through the Bible, and we're in the book of Acts, and we're in this really key pivot in the book in chapter thirteen, which is where Paul and at that point his ministry partner Barnabas are going to be sent out to begin the first kind of official sent out missionary effort by a church. And the preface to that section, chapter 13, this is the first three verses, is really cool. Um, And it starts off, it it says how that came about, tells a story of how that happened. And it says that they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. And during that time, uh, the Holy Spirit spoke and said to them, set apart to me, Paul and Barnabas, to this work that I've appointed them to do. And so uh, the, it's interesting, there's so much important stuff that happens in there. Notice that the, the Holy Spirit is a person that he speaks, he has a will. Sometimes think people think of him like the force, you know, that like, oh, the Holy Spirit, like, well, I overcame by the No, he's a person who, who you interact with and, and can control you and influence you. And in any case, he speaks and gives specific direction in that chapter. But the thing that struck me and that Chris brought out was that there, um, this, this cool work that begins comes from this time when they're sitting in some way and ministering to the Lord. What does that word really mean? And he spent a little bit of time unpacking that this idea that for us as believers, the idea of um, our service is supposed to flow from something else. It's not just, hey, God, give me a list of things to do and I'll go do it. Sort of a honeydew list, if you will. It's supposed to come from relationship. (laughs) I won't say what I was going to say. When I do that, just know it must be terrible because I don't self-censor very well. Anyways, yeah, you don't, it doesn't come from relationship. It, it comes from relationship, not just something that needs to be done. And so uh, I was considering that for me. What does that mean for me? Uh, I, I hope when you're listening, when you're reading God's word or you're listening to a sermon, you're asking, Lord, what do you want to say to me? And so I was thinking about this and how for me, because of my job, I'm a quote-unquote professional it's easy for my, what I do, because it's all supposed to be around church and God's people and God, to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm close to him or I'm in good relationship with him. And I think that may not be true. I'm, over the last week, I'm like, I don't think that's so. So just some data points. This is my story today, uh, is Sunday sermon. And then we talked about something along this line. I think Marcus Handy brought this up in staff devotions. And then at our home church on Thursday night, there was a similar theme that came back up for me, and that's where I landed on this passage, and then Chris got sick, so here we are. What, what really struck me out of that was, Chris was talking about different ways of ministering to the Lord. One of those would be prayer, right? And I realized that for me, my prayer time, and I have a reputation as a guy that prays a lot. If you've ever hung out with me, I probably like hijacked you with prayer at some point where you said something, and then I randomly broke out in prayer, and you're like, were we supposed to close our eyes? I don't know, your rhythm's kind of weird here. So but I have the reputation, but I'm not really actually very good at prayer in truth. And I realized something that for me, prayer almost always verges very quickly and almost entirely into intercession where I'm praying for other people. That's good. That's good. But it was, I imagine it would be sort of like if you were parents and all you ever did in your whole relationship was talk about your kids or whatever problems you have. Well, that's important. I suppose you should probably communicate about those things. But I'm thinking 
that if all you ever do is talk about your kids and your problems, your relationship probably isn't a lot of fun. Probably not enjoying that. There was an older couple that came to Coastline Forever and they told me they had a rule after years and years that there was, they would go away for a weekend and they had three rules for the weekend. They could not talk about money, their kids, or church. <laughs> Those are the three things they couldn't talk about. They were all important, but those things would press in so much on their life that their relationship actually felt kind of strained because of it. So I thought about that for me, and I, I think I verged into that place where a lot of my life revolves around activity, but not so much the enjoyment of him. So I'm trying to recalibrate some things, and that's the sermon today. Uh, so this is a classic letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, spoken by Jesus to the apostle Paul, be in Revelation chapter 2. So some background while you're turning there, the, the author of the book of Revelation is the apostle John, and he's probably in exile at this point on the island of Patmos, well he is on the island of Patmos, and he's probably the last living apostle, the last of the twelve, he's probably an old man. Um, he had actually been a leader or a pastor at some point at the church at Ephesus, a church that had been founded likely about 30 years or more before these words are written. Um, it had been a church in the letter, Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter one that was commended for its love. It's one of the things Paul mentions. I think it's verse 15 or 16. And it's a place that Paul spent one of his longest stretches ministering. He spent about three years in Ephesus um, pastoring that church, which as you know, Paul's method was like really hit and run. The Thessalonians, they got three Sabbaths. Paul was out. But the Ephesians got three years with Paul. And he takes time on his last trip back to Jerusalem to stop and talk to those leaders that he had served with. So it's interesting to see as we have these data points of them, uh, their founding and their commendation for love and Paul's relationship with them, the apostle John's relationship with them, that we find at this point in that, the life of that church, maybe 30 some years in, here's what Jesus says to them about their life as a church. So let's read it. I'll read it from both the New American and the NLT as well. So New American says it this way, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who mock, who, excuse me, walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. That's that hupomone word we spent all that time on a few weeks ago. And you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. Now, all of these initial things are commendations. These are all great things. I imagine if you were the guys in the church hearing this list, you'd probably been like, wow, Jesus thinks this about us. He sees our work. He knows that we work hard for him, that we endure, and we, we uh, sort out false teachers. And that's great. And that you have persevered and have endurance for my name's sake. All these were for Jesus' sake, it says, and have not grown weary. Their witness, 30 years later, still, you know, they're still going about the activities that they started. So anyways, but then he says this, the classic line, but this I have against you, or I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Oof. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Here it is from the NLP. Write this letter to the angel of the church at Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles but are not, and you've discovered they're liars. 
and you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love, listen to how the NLT brings out this ambiguity we'll talk about. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove you from your lampstand or, and your lampstand from its place among the churches. So let's unpack this a little bit. So we, we talked a little bit about the background. They had this, this great uh, beginning. Two apostles had served there. And now Jesus is coming and speaking to them and saying, uh, hey, here's some things in your church that are great and here's a problem. So let's just break down some of the other things in this that are really cool. First off, chapter, chapter 2, 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven gold, golden lampstands is a callback to chapter 1. When Jesus is introduced to John, when he has his vision of Jesus, that there are several things that are described about Christ in that vision. And one of those is that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now, this idea of the stars seems to be, in fact, we can establish it elsewhere from the book, uh, a reference to the ministers of those churches. So if you in any way lead any ministry and you ever feel like, does God see me? I love this verse. It says that he holds you in his right hand. Isn't that a great place to be? He's holding on to me when I don't feel like I can hold on to anything else. I love that verse. And then this, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands represent, um, and if you have questions about this, we can talk about it more. But it's pretty easy to establish that the lampstands represent each of the churches. If you just think about the language that Jesus uses to describe us, this fits very well with that. Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. And he also says that we, you and I, are the light of the world. Gathered together, we are these lampstands. And I love that Jesus is walking among them. I don't know if you ever fall into this trap, but I still, I don't know if it's from childhood or where, but I sometimes just think of Jesus as up in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, which is true, that language is in the Bible. But I think of him as sort of removed. He's up there watching and I'm praying like, hey, can you pay attention to what's going on down here? Or could you come and get involved and help us with our little program? And that's not the idea at all. Here it is, the scripture telling us that he's walking among the lampstands. So, you know, it's not weird to think that Jesus is here walking around. Now, don't think of him walking around like a supervisor, like, you know, but like that he's here with us because he cares. You know, it's the same way maybe a mom or a dad would be in amongst their kids because they love them and they want to watch over them and care for them. So that, that is very meaningful to me that in little only Oregon, Jesus would be here to hold on to us and to walk among us and hopefully set things straight if they get out of line. Then he goes through his commendations. And I'll move quickly through these, but he says, I know your deeds. This is not a bad thing. Uh, this word deeds in Ephesians 2.10 is used as well, combined with the word good, that God has prepared good works in advance for us to walk in. It is part of our uh, right, our our destiny to be servants of him, to do certain things that he's prepared for us to do. So these doing deeds is not a bad thing in any way. He says, I know your deeds. You could say that's a thumbs up there. And your toil, your hard workers, your perseverance that you endure. We talked about that and that you can't tolerate evil men. There is an aspect for us as a church where it is our job to evaluate the claims of people who come in to claim to speak for God and find out when ideas and, and messengers are false. He commends them for that. It's a tough thing sometimes. In the church today, we have, Chris has talked about this before, that there's people saying, here's a prophecy from God and it doesn't come true. And the Bible says that when people say they're prophets of God and what they say doesn't come true, you're not to fear them. Those, that's, God doesn't ever get anything wrong. So you can sort those guys out and he commends them for that. And they're, they've endured for my name's sake. 
boy, I don't know about you, how long you've been a Christian, but it's so discouraging sometimes to watch and see people that you began walking in Christ with or served together with, and then they leave. They just, they don't endure. They, they bail and, and, and skip out you know, on following Christ. It's a loss. You feel that someone from your family's gone. And so he commends them for all these years having endured for his name's sake and not growing weary. But I really want to hone in on verse four. Obviously, that's the one that, that hits me where I'm at. But I have this against you that you've left your first love. Now, the very first thing that's deeply, deeply uh, devastating to me is this. Here's this church, which from all outward signs, you know, if you'd visited the church at Ephesus, you'd walked in, grabbed one of their bulletins and you'd read their doctrinal statement. You'd be like, right on. These guys are orthodox, man. They trust the scripture. They're enduring for Christ. They're sorting out false doctrine from true doctrine. And you'd walk in and you'd see their programs and like, man, they've got all these things going on for the Lord. This is great. Look at this evangelistic outreach they have. Look at this children's ministry over here. Wow, here's a small group discipling opportunity. You might hear stories of people who had been thrown into prison, had endured suffering for the name of Christ. Perhaps someone would get up and give their testimony and talk about what they'd been through and how God had been faithful and they'd clung to him. And you'd think, man, this church has a lot of things going on that are good. And you wouldn't be wrong. But here's what's devastating. Apparently, according to this, it is possible to be a church that is orthodox and involved in good work with great programs that are even helpful to endure for the Lord and not, listen, not love God or at least not love God well. Does this frighten you in any way? Does that sound like oops? I mean, I sort of assume if I walk into church and I see those things, I'll bet these guys love God. And if you made that assumption about Ephesus, you would be wrong. I feel like that should hit. certainly does for me. That I can't, merely by this list of external things, know that I'm actually loving the Lord well. And it matters to him. Now, it, shouldn't, it should seem rather obvious, I suppose, that it matters to him. Um, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think when the NLT adds this in that you've uh, left your first love, or translates that as, you do not love me or each other as you did at first, that could, it's a fair idea. You know, and it says you've left your first love. We automatically assume that's love for God, and I don't think that's a bad assumption, but it's not necessitated by the text. This just says you've left your first agape, your first love. It doesn't establish the object of that love. But aren't the love of God and the love of the brethren intimately connected throughout the Bible? We tend to think of those as separate ideas. And I suppose that there's a way to do that categorically. But in terms of the way it's supposed to play out practically, those ideas are linked. John writes in his letters, 1 John, to say like, listen, if you meet a guy and he says, I love God, but he doesn't love Christians, he's a liar. (laughs) Truth isn't in him. So if you're a guy walking around, you know, I love God, but I hate Christians. I don't know what to tell you, man. You're a liar. You don't know what it means to love God. That's what the Bible says. You could say Christians are difficult. (laughs) You could say they're frustrating. But if you say you just straight up don't like Christians, but you love God, you don't know what it means to love God. That's what the Bible says. Because he goes on to say that anyone who loves God will love the children born of him. Think of it this way. Imagine I come to your house. I happen to like children. Don't tell any of them they're in here today. I try to convince them that I don't like children because I need to be a mean teacher. But anyway, I come to your house and I, I come and we hang out for a while and I'm like, listen, I, let's see who's got, let's say I go to the Oyens house. They got a bunch of kids. Okay, so I go to the Oyens and I'm like, 
Mike and Megan, thanks for inviting me over. I've got to be honest with you. You know, I've really enjoyed getting to know you guys through home church and hanging out. And you two are great. But I cannot stand Henry. He's the worst. Just do not like that guy at all. And your kids, I mean, they're just, I just, honestly, if we could just hang out some time and not your kids, that would be sweet. How do you think my relationship with, with Mike and Megan would go? <laughs> no way. They're like, you don't love my kids? Hit the road. These are my people. This is what I'm, I'm doing with my life, right? So, I mean, they might have days where they don't like Henry, but that's between, I'm just kidding, but that's between them, right? That's not something you're going to tolerate from somebody outside your circle. You want your people, people come in to love your people. And that's the same that the Lord asks of us is you need to love, you need to love other people. Now, because that is difficult, where do we get those resources? Obviously, if we're taking those two and putting them together, this begins in an order. It begins with the love of God and it filters down into the love of people. That is probably an issue that they have here. First, John goes on to say that, how are we able to love at all? We love why? Because he first loved us. God is love. God is the source of love. And in, in discovering that he loves me, frees me from all of the self-protective, when I really dive into it, behaviors that I have. Like, man, I've got to work hard to provide for me because if I don't, I'm screwed. And I'm like, oh, God loves me. He promises to provide all of my needs. Ooh, pressure off. Um, let's see what are some of the other ones we've got from him. His love. He, he disciplines those that he loves. Okay, so I don't have to worry about trying to find everything wrong with my own life. He's a good God. He'll take care of me and correct and guide me. Uh, we could go through this. As, I won't spend too much time on it. Oh, guilt. Man, I'm carrying around all this stuff from things that I've done and just feeling like, man, how could I ever make up for it and discover that Jesus has in fact paid the whole debt that it is I paid in full and I don't carry that guilt around anymore. God isn't mad at me. Oh, I'm free to stop being so self-protective about that. I can even tell people the story of horrible things that I've done because I've been forgiven from that. I'm not carrying that weight around. His love frees me. And once I'm freed from that, then I can realize that there's no obstacle to me loving him anymore. That I, a little guy in only Oregon, can love the king of the universe. And then once I'm experiencing that and enjoying that love relationship with him, then because I'm freed up, I can turn around and be generous to other people. I can give away stuff. I can give away my time or whatever it is to people, even if they're undeserving, I'm free to love them. And all that started because God is love and a relationship with him again. Does that make sense? It's that cascade. So why this is so critical is if we lose, excuse me, that's the wrong term. If we leave our love, we're really losing, we're disconnecting ourselves from the source of power to care for other people. So it may very well be, I think it's totally fair to say that when he's criticizing their, their lack of love, it very well may be playing out both in their own relationship with him as well as their relationship with one another. I have certainly found this to be so. I'm far more impatient with Christians um, and have far less interest in giving anything to any of you when my own relationship with the Lord is strained or sideways. If you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I think of Bilbo when he says, I feel like too little butter spread over too much bread, just thin, worn out, because I'm not enjoying love from my king. So here's the question, though, I suppose. I, I would imagine if I was in, in the church at Ephesus and Jesus had just read me this list of cool stuff I was doing, that in my mind, it would be those things that were reflective of my relationship with him. And in some ways, he validates that in verse three. He says, you've done this for my name's sake, right? But he also says that you don't love me properly. You've left your first love. So I just want you to get that these things that they were doing didn't necessarily reflect love. 
even though they were good things. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. I don't know if you've been, you know, if you think about close relationships that you have. So you know, the easy ones are marriage, children, maybe best friends. You know, you really get to know people pretty well in those relationships for better or for worse. And have you ever been in a spot where you realize that like you or the other party is kind of going through the motions? It's not that the thing that they're doing is wrong. It's just not what it was. Something's missing. Does that, does anybody, does that resonate for you? Have you been in that spot? Like your friend's like, hey, you're here, you're sitting with me, but like, I don't have your attention. You're not invested. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't have your attention. I, I, I know a dear couple from church at one point in their life, one of them had said to me that the other one had said to them, they're involved in all these great things. I don't feel like you love me anymore tough. They said this with tears. You know, they, this is something they want to recover. Yeah. So we can be about a lot of good things and have this, have this happen to us. So at that point, I'm left with this question. Well, if those things in themselves, even if they're good, don't necessarily reflect love, what does? <laughs> what is love? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Sorry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't censor all the bad thoughts that go through my head, just some of them. Listen, love is critical. It's the greatest commandment. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, this devastating passage when he says to them, if I do all of these things, but I don't have love, you know, if I prophesy and I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong. If I surrender to my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. If I give everything away, I'm nothing without love. It is the critical mark of the life of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter five says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And ultimately it is this character of God through our life that he is seeking to produce, not the works themselves. The works are supposed to flow from that. So here, let me, I was thinking about this last night and this isn't really new. An orange tree is known to be an orange tree by the fact that it produces oranges. Is that fair? I mean, I realize a biology major will tell me this other ways, but that's fair, right? Like an orange tree will produce oranges. Okay, but if I take oranges and I put them on a tree, it won't make that tree an orange tree, right? I can hang it on a lot. I can put it on my Christmas tree and I will not make that tree an orange tree. It'll smell delicious, but it will not make it an orange tree. I can't take the works and put them onto something and make it what that thing ought to be. But those things will flow out of what something is by nature. Does that make sense? So here's how this works. We're born again. We become Christians. We say, man, I'm a sinner. I've got a jacked up life. I probably deserve, I do deserve to go to hell. Jesus, I think you died for my sins. I know it. The word says so. I want you to come in and save me. I want you to make me a new creature. And he does. He causes us to be what the Bible calls born again. His spirit comes into us and we now have a capacity to live a different life by choosing or to live out of our old life by choosing. We have two natures. And it's that nature of the spirit when I choose to live by that that produces this character in me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that will play itself out in these kinds of works. But I can't do it backwards. Does that make sense? I'm trying to get to that idea and I think I'm doing it backwards. Because we can, you can just check out. I don't, I have done this again, going back to the conversation thing where I'm sitting with someone, I'm giving them my time, 
but boy, my brain is everywhere else. <laughs> I'm, you know, I have, in my mind, it's always like, uh, I've used this example before. It's like I've pulled the ripcord in Top Gun when they eject from the 14. Like, I'm fully ejected from the conversation. I'm somewhere else. I'm thinking about what I got to do next. How long are they going to tell me about their cat? I don't know. You know, I just, I've stopped loving them. I'm present. I'm there. I'm doing the thing, but I'm not, it's not, it's not real anymore. There's no life in it. There's no life in it. Okay, so, so what does love look like? So let's go back to some, I think we can intuit this from some of our human relationships again. Like, um, how can you tell when somebody loves someone or something? Kids, you're stuck in here today because we don't have teachers. How can you tell when someone you know loves something or someone? How can you tell? You can answer out loud. Please answer out loud or it's going to get really weird. Actions? Okay. Okay. Any of the kids, how can you tell if you love somebody or you love something? How do you know? Okay, so there's a tension. That's good. Yep. What else? What's that? Okay. You want to give them some time. So there's time. There's attention. What else? You here's some. Here's some quick, quick little things. Um, so I, I just I watched a clip of the movie Elf last last, last night for this. When you remember when Elf? Anybody ever seen the movie Elf? Okay. So he, he comes running into the board meeting. He says, "I'm in love. I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it." He just wandered into a board meeting, and he doesn't care. He's totally blissfully unaware because. He is in love. It it absorbs his attention and makes him act odd. Okay, what else can you think of? They talk about it. What's the joke? You know, how can you tell a CrossFitter? They'll tell you in the first minute you meet them that they're a CrossFitter, right? Or anybody who's obsessed with anything. This is what we talk about. It's what involves our attention and involves our time, our time, attention, and talk. If you like the alliteration of T's there. What else? Praise. What do you mean? Yes, but that sounds like a church word. So say what you mean. Give that example. I think you're right, but tease it out. Yeah, there you go. So you've noticed things and you're extolling those. Yeah, I think there's something to that. There's, you're noticing and you're calling out what is awesome about that thing or person. Ooh, that's really good. Yeah, you really tend to want to. Have you seen those pictures of people and their dogs? You know, that like how people and the dogs look alike. You don't know that it start that way. Is there something that's changing? Yeah, we do. There's a, there's a good statement you can say, and I'll, I'll get to this in a minute in a scripture if I have time, but he's, that we, you become what you behold, right? Whatever you stare at long enough, which by the way, when I see my screen time statistics on my phone is a little scary sometimes. You become what you behold, yeah. And just to give you the verse, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we all with unveiled faces beholding him, that is Jesus as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are transformed into his image from glory to greater glory. So this idea of focus on him has this transforming effect on me. That relationship, that love relationship with him actually changes me. Yeah, so we want to be like them. What else can, do you notice? There's one more T word since I'm a pastor. Say, say it louder, I couldn't quite. Okay, I, go ahead. What do you mean by that? I think that sounds right. Oh, got it. Yeah, so you allude to that. Like, <laughs> oh, and this is totally true with people who are in love, right? So you're telling them some story and they're like, oh my gosh, let me tell you what my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my husband or wife or my kid or whatever my uncle thinks about that. Yeah, exactly. Like I was having conversations the other day and like, oh my goodness, really? Okay. Yes. So you'll relate everything back to that thing. That's good. And what did you say? Sacrifice. sacrifice. Yeah. Like, what do you mean by that? Because we're not talking about taking blood sacrifice. Yes, but I think you're onto something because would you say that people who don't know the Lord also sacrifice for things they love? Yeah, yeah. I think it's easy. It's intuitively easy to see that if you watch someone who loves stuff or um, loves cars, you know, all of a sudden they're spending a bunch of money on parts for their car. Or if they love, um, and again, I, we're not condemning these things. Like we love all kinds of stuff. People who have a child immediately upend their entire life for that child. They spend boatloads of money on 
these things that they're going to fill with disgusting things and throw in the garbage and they, they stop sleeping properly and they don't eat well and they don't take care of themselves the way that they once did all because there's this wonderful little precious human that they're willing to lay down their life for. It's actually beautiful. Oh, you want to protect it. Dude, that's a really good one. I didn't think of that. Yeah, you guard it. Yeah, I just heard a story of one of my friends who uh, has a kid and um, their kid, like every parent's nightmare, like little toddler gets up, ran across and dropped into the pool, right? And I think the guy fully supermaned his child out of there, you know, that you want to protect them at all costs. Like, oh, I will, boy, that hits too. The things that should be the most important to me, I want to protect and guard. So here are some marks just to review, to find out what the things that I love. Does it, do I have time for that thing? Am I devoting time to that thing? Am I willing to sacrifice for that thing? Does that thing have my attention? Am I protective of it? Was it? Oh boy, that's true. Dang it. Yeah, you miss them. Boy, that's that's right. Have you ever watched a first time mom try to drop off their child in the nursery or the, the minnows room? <laughs> it's, a, I'm not, it's actually a beautiful thing. Like if, if a parent didn't care, that would be kind of strange. Actually, by the time they get to about five, they really are like, they're going to be fine. Here's my child. I'll be back in a couple of days. But the first one, it's just like, I don't know. I'll be gone. Or will they still be here when I come back? It's beautiful. It's reflective of their love. They miss them. They're in church. If, if there's any numbers that flash up, they're like, is that my child? Are they okay? Their heart is still back there, even if they're pretending to listen to me. It's beautiful. Yeah, they miss them. Boy, those are good things. Okay, so grab those ideas and just think about, and again, this is not meant to be condemning. I really hope it doesn't come across that way, but corrective, helpful. Does Do these things describe the way I think about my relationship with God? Am I protective of it? When something appears to be a threat to that relationship, um, whether that would be like sinful or even just distracting, do I want to be like, oh man, I don't know, because I really want to protect this thing I got going with God. It's pretty great. Or am I kind of like, well, you know, it'll probably just fit. It'll be fine. God's gracious. It's no biggie. Do you see the difference there? Because I definitely do that. (laughs) That's a problem. Do I devote time to him? And here's what I see is that, again, I become performative in some of these things with regard to prayer, my time in the word, where it's like, I got to get my time in. Got to execute. Got to knock this out. Okay, got to check the boxes, right? We're good. Cool. I'm going to go get some stuff done for you now. Do I talk about him? Do I relate things, like a brother said up there, do I relate things back to him, right? When I'm having conversations about politics or um, whatever the problems of the day are, am I bringing those things back to my God and how he may see it or what promises he's made in the midst of it or how I'm relying on him to get me through it? If these things are not present, um, it may be because we haven't learned to do them, Sometimes that's the truth. And in all relationships, we have to learn to do things sometimes that aren't aren't normative for us so we can learn those. But it may also just be reflective that maybe I don't love him the way that I did at first. Does any of this hit for anybody else? A little bit? Okay. There's a song, and I can't really figure out how to work it in really well, but it made me cry last night, so I'm going to tell it to you anyway. It's from one of my favorite musicals where Tevye and uh, Golda and Fiddler on the Roof have been married for 25 years in the middle of this chaos that's happening politically and their children, Tevye turns to her in the kitchen and says, do you love me? And they have this whole little great song. These two old people sing it back. And the funny part is she goes through this list. She's like, I'm your wife. And he's like, I know. (laughs) And she goes, I've like starved with you and we've done all these things together. He's like, I know we've done all these things. I know all these deeds. I know our toil and perseverance, but do you love me? 
And at the end of that, there's a scene where they both realize that they do, and there's this cute moment. Anyway, that's going down the pipe there for me. I love it. But, they, but this is, I think, something that we want to know, not can we work together? Can we accomplish things together? But do you love me? And listen, I think that is the Lord's heart, too. And it's not because he's insecure. I, I'm a pretty insecure person, I suppose, in many respects. But God is inviting us to love him because he is the source from which all life comes. He's doing us a favor. He's not like, you don't love me enough. This is nothing like that. It's like, oh man, you, you can't do better than me. And if you don't love me, then you won't be, have anything to give to the world. Listen, what are we, if we're a, a lampstand, if we're doing all of these other deeds to invite other people, what are we inviting them to? What are we offering to say? What do we say to people? Would you like to have lunch? <laughs> I like lunch too. Are we already there? It's 1109. No, what do we say? When, as Christians, when we're witnessing to people, we're talking to them, what are we offering them? A relationship with God. If we lose that ourselves, <laughs> what are we offering them? Listen, I'm super busy, but you should have a relationship with God. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> so I think when Jesus says to them, listen, remember where you fall and repent to the deeds at first or else I'm coming, remove your lampstand. Like it's more a recognition, like the light has gone out of the lampstand. Why would I leave that broken lamp in the living room? Like to be the light of the world is to be someone who's reflecting Christ and his character to the world. And if I'm not doing that, then what good am I? I'm useless. It's not necessarily mad at me about it. I don't think you have to read that in there. We just can't do it. These deeds alone, these, this list of orthodoxy and good practices are not the light of the world. That light is Jesus. And if I don't have relationship with him, I have nothing to offer anyone. Oh, no, I do actually. I have a nice social club. I have some fine upstanding citizens that you can hang out with. I have a way to make the world a better place by trying harder and doing better. But you can join the Elks Club for that. We offer something supernatural and transcendent in the person of Christ that you can know, who can inhabit you and live through you. And through that, yes, all of these things must in some way surely follow, but they must start here. And if that's lacking, if that's going sideways, then we should, with all abandoned, find our way back. It's such a grind, I speak from experience, watching other people to do this without him. In fact, what does Jesus say in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it isn't that we can't do anything. The truth is we can do a lot of things. It's just that they will account for nothing. You can literally waste your life in religious activity for God that amounts to nothing. Doesn't that sound like, <laughs> who would want that? <laughs> okay, so now that I've sufficiently beat us up, maybe some of you aren't. Maybe you're like, man, I'm on it. I'm loving Jesus. Please, listen, please keep doing that. Your love for Christ, the way that you are pursuing him and enjoying him, reminds those of us, like me, who lose sight of that or forget what I'm missing. When I watch you go through your service for the Lord and you're enjoying him, and I'm grinding it out. I'm like, what's the deal? I'm missing something. Oh, yeah, that's right. This idea, before I pivot to the very last part here, is, uh, is really what was transformative. I grew up in a Christian home. Some of you guys know. I, was, I thought, today, I haven't told any of my story for a while, so maybe I'll tell a bit of it um, shortly. My dad, as you know, is a pastor. He's speaking next week. Oh, by the way, some of you guys know my dad snapped his Achilles tendon. He's doing great. Uh, when he preaches next week, he's probably going to need someone to help him up the stairs. 
<laughs> so if someone could do that, would be great. And watch him going down the stairs. I love my dad. I don't want him to fall. Anyways, so I grew up in a Christian family and became a believer when I was a little kid. And, um, <clears throat> and it was sincere. You know, it was, I adopted what my parents had believed, but I really did believe it. And I had some really great points along the way when I was 12 where I really committed my life to him. I was a skater and had seen that there were multiple ways to live life and what lifestyle that I want to live. And I was like, no, I like being a Christian. I want to live for him. Started reading my Bible for myself at that age. It was really meaningful for me. Um, and then off I went to college. And um, I, while I was at college, I was involved in a lot of things. Went to a Christian college. Not something I would ever recommend, but that's a discussion for another day. Became an extremely lukewarm Christian. Again, you could have asked me questions from the Bible and I would have given you orthodox answers. There were things about that, that I was involved in in terms of my activity that people commended and thought were good. I went on at least one or two missions trips during that time, but I was far in my heart from the Lord and I was wearing out. That's what I would call it now. I was wearing out. And I graduated early with honors, gave an address to some of my students, and I was deeply depressed about who I was. And at that point for me, I hadn't connected these dots. I really did think that I was doing a lot of Christian things well. I mean, if you'd asked me, I could have pointed to some things, the way I, my language, particularly the way I treated women that were problematic, but I knew that, you know, we have things were working out, but I really did think that I was living a Christian life. And uh, at, at the end of that time, I wound up on the beach. Some of you have heard this story before down at uh, the Whale Park there in Cannon Beach. I was on a little family trip. I graduated, didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I, it's, this sounds so epic and dramatic, but I end up at the beach and, I'm, and I wasn't. I was really more just in a lousy spot. And I was like, Lord, kind of praying, Lord, I have done everything right and I'm totally dissatisfied with my life. What is the deal? Now, doing everything right was this mistake that I thought it was about these largely external features, right? I give good answers to bevel questions. I'm the kid in Sunday school that knows all the answers and I'm involved in these things and I'm gonna, you know, be a successful American and all that and um, that's good, right? Why am I dissatisfied? And I said this part, and this was the best part of the prayer, was uh, feel free to have a shot at it. So now that was just really offhanded on my part. Like, feel free to have a shot at it if you've got any ideas because it sounds like I had this great, oh, I'm surrendering but I meant it, and, uh, and I think he took me up on it. And so I wound up at Ecola uh, down in Canada Beach, came winter term because I'd graduated in the middle of a year. And that was a whole new experience for me. And I'm not here to, to gas, gas up Ecola so much. It was great for me. I love Ecola. But um, the Bible says that you will seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And that's about an attitude and a relationship, not a place. Places can help, but you know, people can go to Ecola and not follow Jesus too. So, it, but it was epic for me. And it was this rediscovery of this central idea that this, this idea that we are in a relationship and not a religion was something actually factual and practical that I could know the living God. So Philippians chapter three, verse 10 was like mind blowing. I was sitting in the back of the chapel one day and uh, reading through this. And I was like, Paul says, the guy, the great doer, the guy involved in all these works, kind of from my perspective, uh, a hero in that way. Look at all the great things he did. Says that he had forsaken all this other stuff about his resume. Why in 310? So that I might know him. And I was like, what? Paul was about, this all for Paul was about knowing God. He could have an intimate relationship that involved this personal interaction. That's crazy. That's so cool. And that he wanted that with me and that I could have that with him was massively transformative. Massively transformative to what I wanted out of life, how I saw myself, 
And it remains the constant tension of staying in that place because I just go back to doing the things. So I commend this to you as something that is real, not something you just hear over and over at church because I know we talk about it a lot. I hope we do. But because it works. It's functionally important so that you and I can be the light of the world. So listen, so we can have an abundant life, so we can enjoy life. How much fun is your marriage or your parenting or your friendships when you're just being performative, when you're going through the motions? Does anybody want that in any relationship? How much less with the living God? Okay, so what do we do? First off, notice in verse four, he says, I have against you that you have left your first love. So this implies the word left there is a decisive act, not an accident. It's not something, it, it could happen over time by degree, but it's not like, oh shoot, forgot about my love here. It's, it's, there, were, there were choices being made. So again, I think about um, a friendship or something where you slowly just start to like not make as much time, not give as much attention, not relate back to that thing as well. You know, it, it's a drift, right? You've made little choices at each turn and you wound up over here. But it is a choice. It doesn't happen by accident. I love what you said about guarding things. That was really helpful. Guys, we have to guard our relationship with the Lord. There are a lot of competing interests for it. Have you left your first love? Can you look back at places where you're making those choices? Here's what Jesus says to do, verse five. Remember from where you have fallen. If you want to summarize, well, we'll just go through these one by one. Remember, it's helpful for me to tell my story about what Jesus has done in my life, of where he's brought me from and what he took me through. Because when I stop and think about that period of time at Ecola and really the next year or two when I moved to Portland and had decided to reorder my life because I wanted this relationship to be important, what did that life look like? And how much did I enjoy those things with him? I so did. I so did. I mean, I learned to love hiking. I'd go off by myself in the woods, talk to God while I was doing it, enjoy creation, feel really small, be moved to worship out of it. I found a good church on my own. Um, I was driving a long way because I wanted to make time for these things that were important. On my days off, sometimes I would get up and just stay in my room and read the Bible, not because I had to put in the time or I was preparing to teach something that wasn't even on the radar for me, but because I just wanted to know him. It's like stalking someone's social media page. No? Okay. You're not creepy like me? All right. Because you want to know that. What are they about? What are they interested in? I wanted to know what he was like. And it was such an enjoyable experience. Remember that. Guys, what was it like for you? Or is it like for you when you walk closely with the Lord? What is it like? What are the things you were doing or are doing? What does it feel like? What are the memories that you have from that time? Tell yourself those things. Remind yourself of it because it's that vision of what is possible, of what life can be like that will draw you back, that will give you energy to do the next part, which is to repent. So remember from where you fall, and he says, and then repent. Now repent sounds like, you know, it's the revival word, like a guy with a big bony finger is a huge Bible. Repent is, just means a word, it's metanoia. It means to change your mind. Uh, a change of mind, though, that brings about a change of action is what that word implies. So he says, hey, remember what things were like? Wasn't that great? Dude, it was. Man, I was not worried. I was trusting God with things. I remember for me, one example that just popped up the other day was uh, when the whole uh, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky thing was going down. And everybody's like losing their minds about it. And it was not diminishing. It was sinful. But I was in a really great spot with the Lord. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. But I was just cruising like, okay, Jesus is still on the throne. God is still great. And he deals with these things. So on I go. Like my world didn't depend on a political dude. 
right? Now, that has not always been the case for me now. I'm just saying that's, that's what's possible. But that moves me. I'm like, I want that. I want to move through life with that peace that Jesus can give. Remember that. And then you're like, man, I'm going to change my mind. What am I doing? What am I doing right now? I'm going to change my mind about these things. And I'm going to change my direction. And third one, do the things you did at first. If you want to make it into three R's, you can say that the strategy is remember what it was like. Change your mind, repent, and redo or repeat those things that you did at first. Man, what were those practices that were, that were life-giving to you? Well, I was making time for him. Okay, find a way to make time again. If you say to me, I don't have the time, I would say, does anybody have the time for anything? We make time for the things that we want to do, right? At least to some degree. Make some time. Pick something out. Is anything more important than your relationship with the Lord? Isn't it worth it? I think the answer must be yes, should be yes. Do those things. What activities did you find that were moving for you in increasing that intimacy with him? When I've talked to people who are musicians, um, like guys like Craig and stuff, these guys will talk about where they would just sit and they would play. And it wasn't to practice for a worship set, but it was just to enjoy and express appreciation. I can't remember who said that, for the one that they love, their king. And, and Jason used to say, when's the last time you just sat with your guitar if you're a musician and just like sang or played for him? Not because you were prepping for anything, but just to enjoy him. For me, do I sit and read? And this is a, a challenge for most guys I know who are quote unquote teachers is that we read the Bible often like we're looking for the next thing to teach. Hey, teaching's great. But that's not what it's here for, actually. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The Bible is a means of, of, for me to know him, to enjoy him. So when I'm reading, am I seeking to know my king? Or am I just looking for information to, to you know, win an argument or, or teach? Did you walk with him? Do you, some people, I was, our home church was talking about uh, journaling prayers. Um, is, is that something that's, that's helpful for you? Find those things that promote that and do them. It'd be maybe the same sort of thing you might do for any other relationship. If you had two kids that aren't getting along and you're like, hey, you used to get along. What was that like? Oh, well, we used to do these things, and it was super fun. I loved my sister. Okay, well, here's the thing. Why don't you change your mind about her being your enemy and maybe go back to spending some time together? Let's do those things. Let's find a way for you guys to go fishing or build, I don't know, forts or whatever it was you used to do. Let's try doing those things that you did at first. Jesus gives us this way back. Hey, come back. He's not mad, but he's offering us a way to life. Remember, repent, and redo. Lest, the warning, we lose our light as a church, and as individuals. We literally are offering the world a relationship with God. And if we neglect that ourselves, and again, what do we have to offer? And what are we left with ourselves? A hollow shell, a lot of activity, sound and fury, signifying nothing. Jesus said, by this, all men will know you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. That's that mark. And when we lose that, we lose our witness, period. Last thing, go ahead and stand. We're done. Uh, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. I hate to quote this. I believe it with all of my heart, and then I don't do it. So it just kills me. The psalmist writes, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy Pleasures forevermore are the promise of God for his people who spend time 
with him, who enjoy him, who make him their first love. And the fruit of that will be that you'll be able to love really difficult people. And when they watch you do that and they move through life different and you aren't getting rocked by every new story or social media post or problem that comes in your life, as real as those may be, but there's something that's happened inside you that's working its way out of you, that is a beautiful witness to the world. That is something that is attractive, not just doing a lot of things. So to harken back to Chris's deal on Sunday, let's let our work for the Lord come from our ministry to him, but let us not neglect it. Oh, you guys, it's such an important thing. Listen again, this church was in danger of losing their witness over this. Let's not be one of them. It's a warning for us and an opportunity to come back to fullness of joy and pleasure with him. Do you have things today that you need to remember? Have you forgotten how good it can be? Oh, change your mind today and redo those things you did at first. Enjoy him. He loves you. He did all that work on the cross so that you could have this. Let's pray and we're out of here. Jesus, easy to preach, hard to do like usual, but beautiful. Lord, thank you always for calling me back. I pray for the rest of my life until you come that you would constantly and always not give me any amount of peace if I start doing this, when I start doing this, if, (laughs) when. Um, I I hate that I uh, neglect real life and I see the franticness of my heart and mind and I don't want that. So I pray for us, Lord, that you today would direct us in these things that today, is there a memory that we need to have restored to us? Would you show us what it was like? Would you remind us of those great moments we shared with you? And then I pray, Lord, for grace to repent and just say, okay, if, this is, if there's things here that need to go, I'm gonna change my mind about it. And then you'd show us, I would like it, Lord, if you showed each of us, to whom this applies, I'm sure there's some people here that are loving you, right? And I'm stoked, but if they need to repent, if they have a, a, a thing to do again, that you would show them. And then, Lord, for heaven's sakes, may we step into that spot with you. And then from there, Lord, as we enjoy your love, may your love flow out from us. Oh God, please let Coastline, let me be known by my love for you and other people. Whatever else, Lord, not my politics, not my job, not being a pastor or loving ice cream or the Blazers or these other things, but like truly, Lord, let me be known as a guy that loves God. Um, I want that. I need it. I need your life. Do it, Jesus, for your glory through us. Amen.